0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: I went out and I bought a lot of costume jewelry uh, to depict whatever I thought we were going to do on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, I wore carnivorous animals and spiders and things. There was a time the Russians were bugging the State Department So we did what diplomats do, which is complain to Moscow. But the next time I met with the foreign minister, I wore this huge bug, and he knew exactly what I was doing.
0: (laughs) That's Madeleine Albright. I was hoping to talk with her on Clear and Vivid, because when she was Secretary of State, she brought communication skills to international relations They were not only powerful, they were inventive and game-changing. I'm so glad you could join me on this show because I'm such a fan of yours. And you're such an important historical figure. And what I love about you as a historical figure is that you're a regular person to talk to. I love your sense of humor. You make me laugh.
1: Well, I love being on a show with you because I feel that I've known you forever because I have watched you forever, and you're a historical figure, so I'm <laughs> delighted. So, <laughs> so here we gray. are, two historical yeah, figures. Yeah, right, yeah.
0: <laughs> Your book, uh, Fascism, A Warning, really interests me, and it's it was a bestseller as a hardcover, and now it's a bestseller as a paperback, right?
1: Well, it's just begun, so let's hope. Yeah.
0: yeah. the The thing that interests me about that, because we talk so much about communication, on this podcast, is your take on how fascism spreads when it's when it does spread. I mean, we seem to go through these periods where everything spreads, one, or one, one philosophy will spread across the world. You, I think you talk about in your book how um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a resurgent interest in democracy and and th- and now we're going through a period where strongmen and, and dictators are—repressive governments are taking over. What do you think makes things spread like that?
1: I think that what happens is that uh, there are um, things that are going on in the world that affect everybody, um, whether it's um, the Industrial Revolution or— Uh, In the case right now, frankly, where there are reasons for inequality in our society, some due to technology and people feeling that they have lost what they had. So we are affected by similar kind of movements. So after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there really was this unbelievable sense of relief that communism had ended and there was this spirit of hope. What is interesting is I think that the things that are going on now in many ways are a result of not having been able to take advantage in many ways of that spirit of democracy uh, to teach people more about how democracy works. And at the same time, what we had was the problem of um, not being able to keep up with the technology, and that's affecting everybody. So then somebody that thinks he's got all the answers says I can solve your problem and it's basically I'm with you and the people that have caused it are these other people and we need to be against them and that's what's really happened
0: That seems to be uh, in in your take on fascism seems to be a couple of very prominent points that always crop up in the in a, when fascism is on the rise I can solve your problems and we have this Common enemy that we're facing. What, what, how, how do, how do you distinguish fascism from other kinds of authoritarian rule?
1: Well, first of all, I think fascism is hard to define. I mean, people throw the term around just, you know, somebody disagrees with you and you call the person a fascist. Uh, Or I sometimes talk about the teenage boy whose father doesn't let him drive, so he calls his father a fascist. (laughs) Um, So it's just a, a term that's thrown around. But it's not an ideology. It's not like communism. It is a process whereby some leader decides to take advantage of the things that are going on in society that are divisive, and this person gains power by providing simplistic answers. And the reason that I wanted to do the book the way I did, the first part really is historical. Mussolini was the first fascist. And what is interesting about that was Italy had actually fought on the sides of the alliance during World War, of the Allies World War I, but they didn't get anything out of it, and so there was really kind of a sense of disgust and disappointment. And Mussolini was a smart kind of outsider who all of a sudden developed a voice and uh, started gathering people together and was able to say that he could drain the swamp and that things would be different and that he had answers. The part that I find interesting that really became very vivid during my research was that Mussolini and Hitler came into power constitutionally. And it was during a period of disappointment, the Germans disappointed at the results of World War I, and uh, a way of blaming other people. And then the leaders in charge in Italy, King Emmanuel, simply asked Mussolini to take over. And in Germany, um, the president Hindenburg asked uh, uh, Hitler to take over. So it comes as a result of huge divisions, of blaming some other group and identifying yourself with one group against them. And it's a process. So it's not an ideology, but it is a process. And one of the parts that becomes dispositive is that um, they the leader uses violence to gain power. And
0: I, I always wondered—I I, I bet many of us do—when when you see fascism in full bloom, the way it was when Mussolini, you know, had had the power that he had you wonder why people would accept somebody exerting that power over them. And you said something in your book, uh, there was a phrase that really struck home to me, that we we seem to have a kind of two sides to us, a yearning for liberty that's in competition with wanting to be told what to do. Explore that a little bit.
1: Well, I think that um, the truth is that liberty uh, is something that is hard to enjoy If you all of a sudden feel unmoored, I think, and don't know what to do. And so it's kind of trying to figure out what the institutional structures can be to make sure that people have liberty that they can enjoy uh, and that actually delivers to them the kind of life that they want.
0: And I guess you don't – when you take on um, a Mussolini, when you accept his uh, his initial overtures, he's not in full bloom – as a as a vicious dictator, he's he's a, a milder version. I, I love the the chicken analogy that you.
1: Yeah, I have to say that what really that's the best quote in the book, Alan, which is that uh, if you pluck a chicken one feather at a time, nobody notices.
0: And and that was Mussolini speaking, right?
1: Yes, right. Yeah.
0: So it was a deliberate strategy to sneak up on the, his own people.
1: Exactly. He actually also said that he was a stable genius, that he had the answers for things. Uh, (laughs) He didn't use that
0: exact phrase, did he?
1: Yes. Mussolini Mm -hmm. said that? Yeah, at least according to what I looked up. Wow.
0: Wow. Somebody like that, a guy like Mussolini, seems to have the ability to read his audience, a kind of what I would call dark empathy where he knows just enough about what they respond to to build on that.
1: I, I think you're absolutely right. This is a, a very smart, manipulative kind of a leader, and but somebody who is, at least from all I saw, attractive in a way in terms of being able to motivate people.
0: I was so struck the more I thought about empathy when President Obama said the world would be a lot better if there were more empathy, uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that's true as long as it's not empathy for the purpose of manipulating the people you're expressing the empathy toward. Because that a, a used car salesman, not to denigrate all used car salesmen, but the stereotype of the used car salesman is that They are tracking what you're going through as they talk to you, and they focus in on the things that will make you buy this piece of junk.
1: Well, I think you've put it very well, but I do think that it is important to have empathy and put yourself into uh, the other person's shoes. One of the things, by the way, I teach at Georgetown, and I was just talking about diplomacy. What is the basis of diplomacy? And what is important in that case is to put yourself into the un- other country's shoes to know what they need uh, and be able to identify with that. And I think, um, I suppose you could say that it's some a little bit of manipulation in terms of trying to respond to what they need, but you do need empathy if you don't overly manipulate it, I guess is the way I would put it.
0: I, I can't imagine actually having a, a real relationship where you can achieve something that both people can benefit from. And even where, I suppose, in a good negotiation, both people give up a little something, but they both benefit overall. How can you do that unless you know what the other person's going through what they really, really need?
1: Well, um, that is really part of— uh not to jump too quickly into my line of work of being a diplomat, but what you need if you are in diplomacy is to have intelligence about what that leader needs and what that country needs in order to have a win-win solution, the way that you put it, which is um, that you uh, both sides get something instead of a zero sum. But it does require a certain amount of empathy for what the needs are of the other person on the other side of the table.
0: When you're on the other side of the table, do you find yourself paying close attention to reading them, to reading their even their body language?
1: Well, you definitely try. Uh, and I think that part of it is if you've—first of all, you you, well, you may meet somebody for the first time, and that's on the basis of information that you've gotten, and then you do a lot of reading of language, and then you do get to know them a little bit, and that helps also. The question is how you have that uh, approach to try to compromise without giving up what your country's national interests are, but you're definitely the body language. So, for instance, Putin— whom I met uh, the first time. President Clinton and I met Putin was before he really was president and he was kind of meek and quiet and uh, ingratiating. And then when I went to meet him in Moscow, he was somebody that was very strong, tough, um, looked you directly in the eyes, did not have notes himself, but took notes, um, and was really somebody that was very uh, hard-line. You could just tell by his body language that he was determined to do what he wanted to do.
0: He was communicating deliberately. It sounds like with his body language.
1: Very much so.
0: And you, delib- this, this I love. This is so, so much fun. I want to hear more about this. That you communicate with the pins you wear, the jewelry that you wear. Is this really true? I mean, you, you, you got a book called "Read My Pins." It sounds yeah. like you're deliberately communicating this with deliberately.
1: Them. I, I have to tell you how it all started. Uh, First of all, I like jewelry. But what happened, I get to the United Nations in February 1993. And it was the end uh, of the Gulf War. And the uh, ceasefire had been translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And I was an instructed ambassador, which meant that Washington was telling me that I had to make sure the sanctions stayed on. So every day in the Security Council, I'd say terrible things about Saddam Hussein, which he deserved. He'd invaded Kuwait. So, all of a sudden, there was a poem in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them, an unparalleled serpent. They called you an
0: unparalleled serpent in the poem.
1: in the poem. (laughs) So, I then had a snake pin, and I started wearing it whenever we talked about Iraq. And so, I think you've seen how the ambassadors go out after a meeting and talk to the press, and all of a sudden, a camera and journalists picked up and said, ''Why are you wearing that snake pin?'' And I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. And then I thought, well, this is fun. So I went out and I bought a lot of costume jewelry uh, to depict whatever I thought we were going to do on any given day. So. On good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, I wore carnivorous animals and spiders and things. And the other ambassadors noticed. And I don't know if you remember how first President Bush said, Read my lips, no new taxes. Right. So I said, Read my pins. And that's how it all started. And I've had a lot of fun with that. So there was a time the Russians were bugging the State Department um, when I was secretary. And uh, we found the person. He was sitting outside the building uh, listening to us. So we did what diplomats do, which is complain to Moscow in a demarche. But the next time I met with the foreign minister, I wore this huge bug, and he knew exactly what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: what I'm curious to know what tends to be the reaction, or what tended to be the reaction when they saw the pin? Did it did they break up in laughter, or did it open things up a little, or were they intimidated by it?
1: I think a little bit of both. That that really did happen.
0: In a way, you're saying, I got you. I know exactly what's going on here. And there's probably never been an approach to diplomacy that used that tool of costume jewelry. That's a a great contribution.
1: my thing. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. It's so imaginative. Was there ever a moment where... You actually defused a difficult situation or turned the tide, partly with the help of a pin?
1: I don't know. I, I, can I have to tell you this story? I can talk about how pins got me into trouble— and how they got me out of trouble.
0: (laughs) I'd love to hear So um,
1: what happened uh, during—we're about to celebrate the 70th anniversary of NATO, but um, when we were in office, it was the 50th anniversary of NATO, and there is a photograph of President Clinton and former Secretary of Defense Bill Cohen and I sitting on a sofa, and we look like crazy people because somebody started the hear no evil, see no evil monkey (laughs) picture— (laughs) And it ended up in Time magazine. And so we really looked nuts. So, anyway, I happened to have found three monkey pins. And we're on our, we're in Moscow for this um, summit. And we walk in. And actually, uh, President Putin says to President Clinton, We always notice what pins Secretary Albright wears. Why are you wearing those pins? And I, You can't believe I said this, but I said it. It's because I think your policy in Chechnya is evil. And he got furious at me, rightfully. And President Clinton looks at me like, are you out of your mind? You're the chief (laughs) diplomat, and you've just screwed up the summit. So that's when they got me into trouble. So then the other thing is I invented the art of diplomatic kissing. You can't kind of visualize Henry Kissinger arriving somewhere and giving somebody a big hug or you know, uh, Jim Baker or whatever. So I started that, and it's much more complicated than meets the eye because in Latin America, some kiss on the right cheek and some on the left cheek, and in France, on um, both cheeks, and the Dutch three times and all that. So I arrive in South Korea, and big embrace, good meeting, uh, and then um, we, I leave, and all of a sudden I get a call from a journalist saying, don't you think the um, South Korean foreign minister should be fired for what he said about you? And I said, well, what did he say? And he said, well, I really like it when Secretary Albright comes because we're about the same age. And when I embrace her, she has very firm breasts. So what do you have to say about that? And I said, well, I have to have something to put those pins on. (laughs) So they've gotten me into trouble and out of trouble.
0: (laughs) I've known more than one diplomat in my life, and I found that they weren't always terribly diplomatic. I wondered what Madeline thought about that. When should you be diplomatic and when should you be blunt? Right after we come back from this short break.
2: On December 14, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, Mild Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, Mild Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com.
0: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Madeline Albright. You raise an interesting question in my mind when you talk about saying something so blunt. As what you said uh, to—it was to Putin, right? Yeah, yeah. How often should you be blunt in diplomacy?
1: Um, I think you do have to figure out what the best method is. I mean, with some people—I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about kind of body language and things. I think sometimes you do have to uh, make sure that your message is received clearly. And so the other side can't say, well, I never understood what she had to say, or um, she actually was very nice and didn't say anything. And so the other part that I think is very important, that it's clear that you're not there as Madeline Albright, but you're there as the Secretary of State mm-hmm. of the United States and remembering that role. And And I always felt, especially, for instance, in China, that... Uh, we had to talk about human rights. That that was might not be the first thing out of my mouth, but it had to be part of the discussion. So, there are a set of things that you've got to get out there; otherwise, it's useless.
0: Do you do you find that these years of communicating with world leaders in tough situations, attacking really complex problems? where the stakes are enormously high. Has that affected the way you communicate with people in your own life?
1: That's interesting. I mean, I think to some extent, I think it's had taught me um, how you get the point across, but it also has taught me the importance of compromise, no matter who you talk to. And on my to-do list is... Um, to talk to people with whom I disagree. I've decided I don't like the word tolerance because that's tolerate, put up with. But yeah, I, do I feel think exactly
0: that, the same way you know, about that word.
1: It's and, just so, but respect. And yeah. so that's why it's important to figure out what people have to say.
0: I, it, I, Funny, I have, in a way, the same mission. I long to talk to people. I don't agree with or who I think I might not agree with and then find out that we agree about so many things. Is that a technique that you might, that you have used ever in diplomacy to establish what you share in common before you get into the what you disagree about?
1: I try. I really do. For instance, let me just say, um, I was born in Czechoslovakia and I understand Russian and I understand Serbian. Uh, because they're Slavic languages, and also my father was um, the Czechoslovak ambassador in Yugoslavia. So when I met with Milosevic, who was one of the more horrible people that I ever met with, uh, I made he was telling me about the history of the Serbs, and I said, you know something, uh, I actually know about the history of the Serbs because I lived here. Now, I think he knew that, but I did, in fact, try to figure out how to at least let it be known that I knew something about it. Um, and uh, with the Russians, same thing. I think you try to figure out what is in your background um, that you can share and try to figure out some common ground. I think it's very important.
0: I, I, I heard somewhere, read somewhere, that you had spent a lot of time with Jesse Helms, with whom you, I'm sure, yeah. disagreed on many, many points. But did you, you had a, a cordial relationship that you could build on?
1: I am so glad you brought that up because it's a very good example of something. Um, What happened was that when I was ambassador at the United Nations, I had been asked to go and speak at a women's college in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what happened was Senator Helms called in order to follow up on the invitation. And I, I have to admit, I actually thought I could get out of it by saying, you know, I'd be happy to do it if you go with me. And he he said, that's a really interesting idea. I'll call you back. So then he calls back and he says, I've changed my schedule. I'm going to go with you. So then what happens is it's very hard if somebody is introducing you to say, um, this is the stupidest, nastiest person I've ever met. So he gave <laughs> me a nice introduction. Um and then uh, we, we went through this whole thing together, and we're flying back, and he said, you know what, I think it'd be great if you came uh, to my alma mater at some point. It's called Wingate College, and I said, sure. So he came, he picked me up. In Raleigh and we started driving around North Carolina looking for barbecue places and we finally get there and he had um, had a hip replacement or something and was having trouble getting out of the car so I was helping him get out of the car and the press took this picture of me hanging on to him and they said this is the odd couple <clears throat> So then my name comes up to be Secretary of State. And, um, you know, that you have to go around and meet the members that are going to vote on you. So I went to see him, and he said, Ms. Madeline, we will make history together. And, but and, I have to tell you some of the things. He, he really was so—when I uh, when I was getting my confirmation, you bring your children with you, and yeah. mine were all very grown up. And my youngest daughter, you know, you introduced them, and my youngest daughter's name is Katie. And so uh, at that state, Chairman Helms, he said, Katie, I have a granddaughter called Katie. How old are you? Um, and she said, "I'm an attorney." <laughs> uh, and uh, and then he said, "A lady attorney." And then I thought, "Oh my God, Katie, don't say it." <laughs> Katie's going to
0: let him have it. Right? <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> but uh, but anyway, we did. We were friends in the end, and together, as a result of that cooperation, we were able to have NATO expansion. It's really and that's, people find it hard to believe. That's such a good story
0: because there are people surely beyond. Redemption, But the idea that more people than we imagine can find a way to talk together and resolve their differences without hating one another, without assuming yeah. that if I know one little thing about you, I know everything about you, and it's right. all yeah. hateful and demonic. It, it, I think there's a very powerful pull from that kind of a story on all of us. I find, maybe it's just me personally, but I find some of the most engaging stories in films and on the stage are stories where people reconcile, and whether it's parents and children mm-hmm. or political enemies. Or this kind of story you just told is very moving to me because that reconciliation from a previous position of this must be the worst person in the world— to this is a fellow human who I can relate to. Yeah. You mentioned a minute ago that you, had, uh, you, you were born in Czechoslovakia, and um, that reminded me that you have a very personal um, antipathy toward authoritarianism and, and, and probably why you react so strongly to fascism. Because you had to escape Czechoslovakia twice, right?
1: Right. I mean, what happened was um, I was born in 1937, uh, and in 1938 was the Munich Agreement um, when the British and French made an agreement with the Germans and Italians over what Hitler wanted— in Czechoslovakia and in so March essentially
0: 30, they said it's okay go get, go get Czechoslovakia go Just get don't them. don't yeah. buy the
1: right that that's kind of where appeasement word comes from and yeah. where neville chamberlain said why should we care about people in faraway places with unpronounceable names oh i so, forgot that
0: he actually said that that's no. unbelievable
1: so then what happened was the nazis marched in in march 1939 and my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat and um, somehow they managed to get out of Czechoslovakia and um, escaped and joined the government in exile in London. So I spent the war um, in London during the Blitz. Um, and we came back to Czechoslovakia after the war and then we went to Yugoslavia where my father became ambassador and then the communists took over uh, and we had to leave again. So. We have been immigrants twice and came to America um, in uh, uh, 1948. And the thing I found out subsequently, first of all, I was raised a Catholic, married an Episcopalian and found out I was Jewish. So I have my own religious discussions uh, in my head. Um, But I found out also that 26 members of my family had been murdered in the Holocaust. And so... I I do have a reason for explaining to people uh, that fascism is a killer and that people need to know what happens. It's
0: striking. It must have been a powerful experience to find out that you were Jewish and that you shared that intimate connection with people who had been murdered by Hitler. How did you find out? I forget that story.
1: Well, it's a complicated story. What happened when I was ambassador at the UN, and it was the first time that my name kind of was out there, and all of a sudden I started getting letters from people, either in Czech or some uh, unreadable English, saying, I'm a relative, send money, or I need a visa, But usually the letters had something wrong in them, like the wrong dates or villages. One letter I I remember is some man saying, I went to high school with your father in 1915, which would have been impossible since he was born in 1909. So I kind of just tried to sort out what to do about all that. And then just before... Uh, When my name came up to be Secretary of State, all of a sudden I get a letter from somebody that has all the villages right and the dates right. And um, from this person who said, uh, I knew your family to be a fine Jewish family. Hmm. So I was trying to figure out what it was about. And I was just being vetted to be Secretary of State by the White House counsel. And they ask you all the normal questions about taxes and nannies and things. And then they said— We always ask everybody this question is, is there anything that you haven't told us uh, that we didn't ask you that you might want to tell us? And I said, well, you know, I just got this letter and it's perfectly possible that I'm of Jewish origin. And they said, so what? The president's not anti-Semitic. So then what (laughs) happens? That's a funny response. uh, One of the things you can't do is to talk to the press between the time that you have been named and the time you're confirmed. Hmm. But there was a reporter from the Washington Post who wanted to do a profile of me. So my office gave him the names of a lot of people that he could get in touch with in Europe and in the United States. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there in this office of the Secretary of State, and he's handing me um, these disgusting cards. The Nazis were very uh, bureaucratic, and they had little index cards about everybody that they'd sent to um, a concentration camp. And all of a sudden I look at these cards and they're family names. It's one thing to find out you're Jewish. It's another to find out that your family went to concentration camps. Mm. And so I could not go uh, to Czechoslovakia to, to look to see how true this was. So I asked my brother and sister to go, and they did confirm this story that is so unbelievable. And two summers ago I took my children and grandchildren to Terezin, where we dedicated a plaque to the 26 members of my family. But it was a horrible, horrible shock in so many ways. And my parents were dead, so I didn't know, you know, I, I couldn't figure out why or what or any of it. You
0: have no way of knowing why you didn't know you were Jewish?
1: Well, my only thought is, because my parents were very protective, I think they must have thought, and this is speculation, is why bring this burden onto the children when they can't do anything about it. Mm. And now, since then, there are more people that I've met who all of a sudden have said, guess what, I have exactly the same story. Nobody told me. I found out later that I was Jewish.
0: That's so interesting. My, My Italian grandfather told me that the Italian family came from Spain in what would have been about 1492. So I might be genetically Jewish too because that was the year of the expulsion yeah. for, of the Jews from yeah. Spain. Yeah. Um, well, probably more of us are, are everything than we imagine. I was struck by something your father said because he had, I'm sure he had that same feeling having been uh, forced to leave or to seek refuge in another country. Mm-hmm. You you say in, in your book that your father felt that Americans, having been free so long, might take it for granted and were in danger of taking it mm-hmm. for granted. Did, did, he, did, he, did he make that point to you a lot? Was he really worried about that for us?
1: Uh, he did make the point a lot. I mean, he was very, very appreciative to be in the United States. And um, one of the things, a story that he used to tell... We were, as I said, we were in England during the war, and, uh, he, and then we came to the United States, and he used to tell the story that when we were in England, people would say, we're so sorry, your country's been taken over by a terrible dictator. Uh, you're, um, you're welcome here. What can we do to help you, and when are you going home? <laughs> <laughs> when we came to the United States, people said, we're so sorry, your country's been taken over by a terrible system. You're welcome here. What can we do to help you? And when will you become a citizen? And my wow. father said, that is what made America different from every other country. So we came and we, the only way I can describe us was grateful Americans. But it also, he made very clear about the fragility of democracy, having lost it twice in the country where he was born and, and the fact that we took, the Americans took it for granted. And he did make the—he met- he delivered that message all the time. And that, that is definitely um, what I grew up with. And so I describe myself as a grateful American. And, and by the way, Alan, one of the things I love doing is giving people their naturalization certificates. Mm. When, and so first time I did it was July fourth, 2000 at Monticello. I kind of figured since I had Thomas Jefferson's job, I could do that. Uh, that's and I great. gave the man his certificate. And all of a sudden I hear him saying, can you believe it? I'm a refugee. And um, I just got my naturalization certificate from the Secretary of State. And I go up to him and I said, can you believe that a refugee is Secretary of State? Uh, great. And that is what is amazing about America.
0: It, it really is. It, But I want to get back to your father's. Um, worry about us. And I, I don't understand how we could get jaded enough to take this freedom, this comparative amazing freedom we have for granted compared to so many other places. Why don't we vote? Why don't more of us vote, do you suppose? Is it, is it this that we're taking it too much for granted? Are there other factors?
1: Now, I think it is that we are taking it too much for granted. And to go back to something that we said at the beginning of our conversation, I think the much larger issue at the moment in the world is that what we call the social contract is broken. People um, historically uh, gave up their individual rights in order to be protected by the state. And that is a contract that both sides have to fulfill. The state is the one that Make sure that roads are built and that things function, and um, you are able to get an education. It is the respo- the privilege, and the responsibility of a citizen to vote. And I think that we have taken both sides have taken the contract for granted, and I think that that's part of the issue. And I know other people have talked about this, but there's not enough discussion about what civics is in in, uh, schools, about the responsibility of citizenship. And I'm chairman of the board of something called the National Democratic Institute, and we help in terms of monitoring elections in other countries. And um, the lines that people line up that haven't had ever the chance to vote in the rain and the sun, and they see it as a privilege, and I think we are taking it for granted.
0: What about the people who vote and have the the disadvantage of not not being informed about who they're voting for
1: well are, I are think
0: we are we we're getting the internet has particularly has given us a poor source of information
1: well, I think that we have a genuine problem uh, i mean a real paradox. there is more information out there than ever before. But that surfeit of information um, comes from a variety of different sources, and people need to kind of figure out where the information is coming from. And I think that's the part that's hard, and it takes a little bit more time. I do think that the community part of this is important in terms of town hall meetings and um, the candidates getting around to, uh, you know, not just to be seen on television, but to really be around trying to talk to the people and respond to what they're asking. And then people have to make up their minds.
0: And that gets back to what we were saying about making contact with people and finding out who they are as people. I just f- realized that you have to get to your next appointment. I don't want to keep <laughs> you longer. I could talk to you all day. Yeah. We 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 always end these these conversations with seven quick questions. I hope you're game for this. They're simple. I'm definitely, okay. They're, they're r- roughly related to communicating. And just quick answers would be fun. What do you wish you really understood?
1: I wish I really understood um, what makes the universe work. I really do. Um, in terms of I talk about uh, climate change and various aspects about science. I I wish I knew more about science.
0: What do you wish other people understood about you?
1: Um, I wish that they would understand that I am endlessly curious and that I love um, trying to connect the dots of the various things I do so that it makes sense.
0: What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
1: Um, let's see, um, why I don't speak more languages when I actually speak quite a few. But I I have to think about that a little bit, you know. I was going to say why I wasn't taller. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: the the best one I've heard, I think. (laughs) (laughs) How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: Um... I usually try to say, um, I understand everything you've said, and and uh, I thank you very much, and I now have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <What>?
0: <laughs> okay. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for?
1: Um, yes, I think some of the people that I've written about in my book, mm. um, those that take advantage of their position to... Uh, lie to people and to uh, motivate them in a way that is counterproductive
0: how do you like to deliver bad news in person on the phone or by carrier pigeon
1: Um, carrier pigeon definitely (laughs) Um, uh,
0: I think you're the first person to actually pick (laughs) pick carrier pigeon (laughs) okay last question what, if anything, would make you end a friendship?
1: I think um, it would be if somebody had deliberately um, lied to me about something that they knew um, I needed to have, the you know, to deliberately undercut something or say something about my family that I knew wasn't true, but that they were deliberately trying to make me believe it.
0: Mm. Well, I have to tell you, You've been so open and fun to talk to. I feel like I became a friend of yours in this conversation.
1: Definitely. So
0: so I'm going to do everything I can never to break that bond. Thanks so much for coming in. I just This has
1: been so much fun for me, Ellen, and you really have been somebody I feel I've known forever. But to really become friends is wonderful. Thank you for this great conversation.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Madeline Albright is an inspiration to millions and I think especially to women. In 1997, she was named the first female secretary of state and became at that time the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government. She's been a groundbreaker her whole life, and she's someone I very much admire. Dr. Albright's latest book is called Fascism, A Warning, and it's a number one New York Times bestseller. It's also recently out in paperback. Some of her other New York Times bestsellers include her autobiography called Madam Secretary, a memoir, a unique work called The Mighty and the Almighty, Reflections on America, God, and World Affairs, and Memo to the President, How We Can Restore America's Reputation and Leadership. And don't forget her trademark pins. She includes a wonderful explanation of their diplomatic use in her book from 2009 called My Pins, Stories from a Diplomat's Jewel Box. For more details about Secretary Albright, please visit the global strategy firm that she chairs. You can find it online at albrightstonebridge.com. This episode was produced by Graham Ched with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Alison Coston. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Carol Burnett, whose show every Saturday night for 11 years was not only fall down funny, but it also communicated a sense of family to the entire country.
2: You look at our show, you can see me supporting Tim Conway or supporting Harvey or Harvey supporting Vicki or Vicki supporting me. I mean, it was a true rep company, which is what I wanted. So that everybody could shine. Everybody could score a touchdown.
0: Join me as I chat with my old friend and fellow actor, Carol Burnett, whose show is now being discovered by a whole new generation. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.